0: Uh, 127, if you could stand with me. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or whether I remain absent, I should hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind by contending side by side for the faith of the gospel and by not being intimidated in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of their destruction, but of your salvation, a sign which is from God. For it has been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for Him. since you are encountering the same, conflict that, the same conflict that you saw me face, and now hear that I am facing. This is God's word. Please remain standing and join me in prayer. God, please be with my dad as he preaches about your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. I just have to get situated. I'm sorry. All righty. All right. So, I said good morning. Um, this morning, we're going to continue our series in the book of Philippians. Um, when we started, we said it was a summer series. So, We're going to go with, it's still summer, right? Even though it doesn't feel like summer. So in the church, it's still the summer series, which I think will probably extend to the fall and maybe the winter. But um, that's all right, because we're going uh, verse by verse through this book. And it's just fun to teach exposition, I can't say that word. It's fun to teach through the word, (laughs) verse by verse. So today we're looking at the last paragraph in chapter one. Um, And here Paul has given us guidelines for Christian living. And I I hesitate when I preach a message or even when I think about guidelines. Well, actually, I choose the word guidelines on purpose because these are guidelines, not rules and regulations. Christianity is a relationship with Jesus Christ more than it is a system of rules and regulations. And sometimes we get caught up in the rules and regulations and we lose the relationship. And so I choose the word guidelines because how we apply some of these is going to be different for each person. And it's the relationship with Jesus Christ that's going to let you know how you're to use these guidelines. And how I express and how I do the guidelines might be a little different than how you do the guidelines. And that's why they're a guideline, not a rule. And um, But yet we do have guidelines in the Bible. God has given us the Bible to so we can know how to live. But They're not, it's not the following of rules that makes Christianity, Christianity. It's the relationship with Jesus Christ. It's, um, but I think a lot of times we just get caught up in the rules and regulations because, you know, because that's easier. You know, sometimes just tell me what you want (laughs) and I'll do it. But that's, God doesn't want that. God wants our heart. He wants our relationship. But these guidelines help us do that. Because it's also, too, like if we don't follow the guidelines, then we're not going to be having a good relationship with him. So it's kind of both. But, um, but that's what we're looking at today. Paul is going to tell them um, how they should live as Christians. And it's interesting because um, he says, whether I come or whether I stay, if I'm absent, this is how I want you to live. And so these guidelines are for everyone and they're for always. Whether Paul was there or not, this is what he expected them to do. And this is how our, you know, whether you're in church or not, this is how your guidelines should go. Um, And so that's what we're going to see today. And actually, I see three guidelines here. Oh, and the other thing, too, Paul says, you know, hey, if I'm not there, I'm going to hear about how you live. And I thought that was amazing, because here we are in this day and age of you hear everything instantaneously. But yet, back then, they didn't didn't even have mail, (laughs) snail mail or phones or anything, but yet, they, they had this network where Paul could be in prison in Rome, yet he still knew how the church was doing in Philippi, which is much farther away. Um, so I just found that interesting. You know, Jesus never traveled more than 200 miles, he never, you know, he didn't release any albums. He was never Facebook Live. But yet here we are, 2,000 something years later, talking about what Jesus said. <laughs> and it's, you know, that's just an amazing thing. So there's three guidelines in this passage. One, live worthy of the gospel. The second is don't be surprised by opposition. And the third is suffer graciously. Which no one likes that one. Actually, I don't, to be honest, well, so this is our outline today. So let's just walk through these. The first one is live worthy of the gospel. So our text opens with this. Sentence, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now, to be completely honest with you, I don't like when I read this. And maybe it's just because, I don't know about you, but when I read something that says be worthy or live worthy, I always get intimidated or I feel sad. I'm just like, because I don't think I live worthy. And what does it mean to live worthy? And that's what we really need to know is what does it mean? Um, Because at times, I just don't think that I'm worthy. Um, and especially when you like, look at the life of Paul or the life of other people. But one thing we have to remember, and Joe brought this out when he preached a couple of weeks ago, I am not Paul. And I am not Joe either. <laughs> I am Morgan. And one thing that we need to remember is that Paul is already talking to Christians. And so living worthy is not a command about salvation. Salvation is, is already taken care of, and we are worthy because Jesus Christ is worthy. He makes us worthy of salvation because he died for our sin. He is righteous, and his righteousness is given to us. So when we read these um, commands to live a worthy life, it's not about earning salvation. It's not about salvation at all. It's an after-salvation command that Paul has given us. And it's actually a common theme in Paul's letters. There's like three other places where he says to live worthy, which just makes it all the more that we have to understand what he's talking about. Because if it was like one verse, we could like, Oh, yeah. Oh, I missed that verse. <laughs> just kind of skip over it. But it's, this is a common theme for Paul. And so we want to just kind of take the spot. What does it mean? And actually, as we look at it, it's not as hard as it, as it seems. Um, but it's really about our daily relationship with Christ. All right. So the first thing is this phrase, conduct yourself." It's actually this Greek word, palatouamai. It's a political word. It means live as citizens. And it's interesting because our translation that I chose says conduct yourselves. The King James translation says let your conversations be worthy. All of those are idioms for to, to live worthy, to how you live your life. But the actual translation, this actual Greek word is live as citizens. Now... The translators didn't translate that um, literally because to us that doesn't have a lot of meaning. Live as citizens, and however, to the Philippian people, they would uh, understand this uh, um, very much. It's a very positive, significant word because, and in Philippi, they would understand it more because Philippi is a is a Roman colony. So Rome is all the way is here, and Philippi is over here. But Philippi is. a colony of Rome. Rome at this time is the, they rule the world, and they're just going along and conquering everybody, and they took over the world. And as Rome took over the world, they allowed people to keep their culture and to just, you know, exist and live as long as you paid tribute to Rome. And if you just paid tribute to Rome, then everything was happy, and that was fine. And you could even worship your own gods, you could do everything, as long as you paid homage to the emperor. And um, eventually, this is why Christianity became illegal, um, because through, when Christianity became, a, world, you know, became a, a religion, they refused to worship the emperor, because Christ is the only king. And, they, and at first, when Christianity had started, the Romans didn't have a problem with it, because you can do whatever you want. But when they started to refuse to worship the emperor, that's when Christianity became illegal. And actually, Christianity was... Christians were considered atheists because they wouldn't worship the emperor. And that's where the persecution happened. But before this happened, at this time, Christianity is in its infancy stages. Paul is going around planting churches. And everything's fine because Rome doesn't care what you do as long as you don't cause any trouble and you pay your taxes. It would be nice if the government would just let us do that. (laughs) But in addition to that, some places were Roman colonies and a Roman colony was an extension of Rome, and those citizens were Roman citizens. So they weren't just citizens of Greece anymore or citizens of Philippi. They were Roman citizens. And as a Roman citizen, you had special privileges and responsibilities. Um, the priv- you had the right to vote, the right to participate in government, and, but there were also written rules and regulations that you were expected to follow but they were written and available to you so you knew exactly what they were and what you were supposed to do. And so when Paul says live as citizens, that had special meaning to them because they were citizens of Rome. They weren't just citizens of Philippi. They were citizens of Rome and they had privileges that came along with that. Um, They also had protection. Philippi had a, a station of Roman soldiers, so Rome protected them. And so so as they have the protection of Rome, they also have privileges and responsibilities. And again, and the biggest one that we see in the Bible is the right to due process. Um, and so the question becomes, for us to understand what this means is, what about being a Roman citizen is the same as living worthy of the gospel? Because this is what Paul is ma- he's making a, a, a comparison between being a Roman citizen and being a citizen of God's kingdom, and later on into the Philippians in chapter three, he says he comes right out and says that our citizenship is in heaven. So Paul is very clearly more concerned about the fact that our citizenship is is heaven, not Rome. But he's making an analogy, and so what is the analogy? And so I'm asking myself, what is it about being a Roman citizen that would make you a good citizen? If you're considered a good Roman citizen. What, what is that? Um, and I think there were two things. One is obedience to a written standard, and the second is participation in the government. Because again, the, um, Rome had a set of written rules, and they, and they would be um, etched on stone somewhere. I forget what you call it like a statue. <laughs> And they would be in the city. And so everyone knew what the rules were. If you had questioned what it was, you could go read it for yourself. And that was the rule. And you were expected to, to, um, to use it, to, to obey it. And that actually has a big um, correlation to, to Christianity. Because Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will obey my word. Christianity does have a set of rules, not rules, but of words that are written down for us to follow and to, to guideline. So a good Roman citizen is gonna know what those laws are and, and obey those laws. And so a good Christian, or, you know, someone living worthy, is gonna know what the written word says and try to live by it. And then the second one is to participate in the government. Now, as a Roman citizen, you would have the right to um, You'd have the right to vote, but more importantly, you—I yeah, well, don't know if it's more important—but what we see in the Bible is you have a right to due process, just like in our country. You know, innocent until proven guilty is what we say, and but and that's basically true. You know, and well, it's technically true. But if you get arrested, you have the right to appeal. Even if you are found guilty, you have the right to appeal. There's due process. You know, they can't just come in and arrest us for no reason right now. Uh, we have the right to due process. And if you were a Roman citizen, you had the right to due process. And we see Paul, actually, Paul was a Roman citizen, and he would invoke this right. And the very fact that he's even in prison, as he writes this, in Rome is because he invoked his right to due process. When he was arrested, and he said, I appeal to Caesar. And this is all in the book of Acts. And so he is using the right to due process. And even when in Philippi... Paul was arrested, and when he was arrested in Philippi, um, they were going to just let him go. They arrested him, and they beat him, and then the next day they're like, oh, we're going to let you go. Bye. Have a nice day. Forget that we beat you and everything. And, wrote, and Paul just said, is that how you treat a Roman citizen? Because they, they didn't know that he was a Roman citizen. And you can't treat a Roman citizen like that. And so Paul invoked his privilege as a Roman citizen, even in Philippi. And so the people that he is writing to would know that because they witnessed that. So um, the, the way to participate in um, the way that we see this as Christians is even in our text today, because Paul says, "Contend side by side for the faith of the gospel." And this word "contend" is um, another Greek word that I can't say, "synaitilio," which is probably no idea. Go on the internet, push like the little speak button and it's going to sound totally different (laughs) but what it means it means to seek jointly Um, it's an athletic word or term talking about teamwork and so to participate in the government and to uh, the way that Paul wants them to do this in in Philippi in the church is to participate together to work together for the spreading of the gospel so just like Roman citizens would work together for the good of Rome the Christians should be working together for the spread of the gospel. And it's about, this word contending is about teamwork. Um, One commentator explains it this way. He says, like athletes on a team, they were to work together to help advance the faith that comes through the preaching of the gospel. Now, those of us in New England know the importance of teamwork. And even when you're down, you can... Still winning, oh, you can't see the score. But final, we all know the score. <laughs> but it's about teamwork, and the Patriots understand teamwork. And Tom Brady is, is the leader, and he's the star, but without the rest of the team, he wouldn't be who he is. He wouldn't be as successful as he is. And the Patriots really understand that mentality. Like, years ago, when, especially in the Super Bowl, when they announced you to come out, um, you, the players would always come out one by one and they would call the name and they would come out one by one at the starting lineup. In one of the, I don't know if it was a Super Bowl or playoff team or whatever it was, at one of those games, the Patriots came out as a team. They didn't come out one by one, they just came out as a team. And ever since then, that's what they all do now. Like next week when football starts and we see everyone's going to come out as a team, they don't come out one by one anymore. But the Patriots were the ones that started that. It's because they understand the importance of teamwork. It's not an individual player that makes the team successful. However, every, team, every person on the team has to do their job. <laughs> and that's, why that's and the same is true in Christianity. We're a team. We are a, a colony of the kingdom. But we're made up of individuals. And so this morning we're going to have all these guidelines, and, but we do these together. And that's the, the next thing that Paul is going to show us in our text, is that, to, that our participation should be done in unity. Paul says this, he says, stand firm in one spirit with one mind. Uh, one author writes, the readers are urged to stand firm in one spirit with one mind. This strongly suggests Christian unity of thought and action, expressed by promoting and protecting the message of Christ. And so while we are all individuals, and we all have individual relationships with Christ, and how that plays out is going to be different for all of us. We ought to participate together. We are to be members of a local church. We are to work together for the spreading of the gospel. So the individuality of Christianity doesn't take away the group effort, and but we're to do it in unity, to do it without bickering, without fighting. I keep looking for the clock and it's not there. <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, it's only 10.15. We, we haven't even started yet. <laughs> um, so, but it, it has to be done in unity. And that's the, one of the biggest things that we're seeing in this guideline. That to live worthy of the gospel is to be done in unity. And now we all dis- we all, that doesn't mean that we blindly follow either, though. We don't lose our individuality. And we have meetings, the leadership, me, Joe, and Kyle have meetings, and we'll talk about things, and we don't always agree on things. Um, but we talk, and we, we express our opinions, and we make a decision. And once that decision is made, though, we go forward with that decision as a group in unity. Um, and, we, and the person, we, we're not like the Supreme Court and write a dissenting opinion, <laughs> you know? We're not called to do that. You know, we're called to express ourselves, we're called to, to work together, and once we make a decision, then we go forward. We don't have dissenting opinions once the decision is made. And just like, as a congregation, we voted for this expansion that we did. We gave you know the opportunity, we, we all had the opportunity to talk about it and to raise our issues and concerns, but once it was voted on and we just, and the vote was to go forward, our duty was to accept that, even if we disagreed with it, because... For the sake of unity, because that's what was decided. Now, thankfully, everyone agreed, and it's—it's it's always easier when everyone has the same opinion. <laughs> but it's going to become challenging. There, there will be times when we do disagree, and but Paul is saying here to be of one mind, to be of one spirit, to have unity. So that doesn't mean you can't disagree, and there. But once the time for discussion is over, then the disagreement has your role is to accept it and, and fight for the unity. Paul says in the book of Romans to live at peace with everyone as much as it is to do with you. And so if you disagree, once, once the decision is made, your job is to support that decision. Again, it's not easy, but that is what is the mark of unity in this passage. The mark of living worthy in this passage uh, is unity. And unity is a big thing, um, in throughout the scripture, Jesus wants us to be one as Him and the Father are one, and He wants us to love one another. And so, um, unity is the key for living worthy. So, to live worthy, so to live worthy of the gospel means we obey the words of Christ, we partic- and participate in the promotion of His kingdom with a spirit of unity with our fellow kingdom citizens. So that's what it means to live worthy. Um, Again, not so intimidating anymore. Not so, like, scary. Like, oh, I can't live worthy. Well, no, we can. (laughs) Because it just means be nice to each other. (laughs) All right. So now, when we live worthy lives of the gospel, we are going to face opposition. It's just a matter of time. Um, And Paul doesn't want us to be intimidated by by it. But actually, what he does... uh, he wants us to not be surprised, and that's our second um, point here. Don't be surprised by opposition. Now, again, if you, when you live as a Christian, we live differently, opposition is going to happen. It's to be expected, and that's our second guideline. Don't be surprised. Paul says in verse 28, not being intimidated in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of their destruction, but of your salvation, a sign which is from God. Now, when I see the word intimidated, here's an, every almost every passage here, I'm like, "Oh, I don't like that word." <laughs> I didn't like the word worthy. I don't like the word intimidated either, because um, here it says, "Don't be intimidated by your opponents." And I just got to say, I feel intimidated a lot of times um, when, to share the gospel. A lot of times um, to speak to strangers, I find that intimidating. If I'm on a plane ride, um, we were going on a mission trip once. And, you know, so you're going on, like, a 10-hour plane ride, right? And you're like, oh, who am I going to sit next to? Who am I going to sit next to? Who am I going to sit next to? And so whenever I go, I read my books, and I sit, you know, and I open up my books, and I'm like, oh, let the person next to me be a reader. You know, don't talk to me is basically what I'm thinking in my mind. Because <laughs> I just, I'm intimidated to talk to strangers. And, um, and there was this one time we were on a plane, and the guy next to me just started talking to me. And... Um, this couple couple, maybe an hour or two into the, to the trip, and he's like, oh, it's obvious you're with those group of people that are on the plane, and where are you guys going? And I'm like, oh, we're going to India to do missions work. He's like, oh, I'm a Muslim. And I'm like, oh, well, nice to meet you. I'll be, <laughs> I'll be reading for the next five hours. And <laughs> but, um, but then he just started talking, and he opened up, and so he made it less intimidating. But I'm always, I, I am intimidated. So when I read this verse... I'm like, oh, man, I don't do that because I feel intimidated. But the good thing is, intimidated, this word intimidated is really not a good word. uh, It's not a good translation of the Greek word here. The Greek word is, uh, well, uh, okay, here's, uh, this guy wrote this. (laughs) The verb translated to be intimidated is pytharisia. It's extremely rare. It's actually, this word is only used here in the Bible. For the, it's only used here in the entire Greek Bible. But it is used on occasion in classical Greek of timid horses that shy upon being startled at some expect, unexpected object. So what they're saying is, this word, a better translation, I think, would be, don't be startled, or don't be surprised. It, so Paul isn't saying, don't be intimidated, and. Maybe the, the actual meaning of intimidation is a little different than how we use it. But the Greek word is don't be surprised. Don't be startled. And that makes more sense to me than, rather than to not be intimidated by our opponents. We, you know, I just, we can't help to be intimidated sometimes. Um, but we shouldn't be surprised that we have opponents. And that's what I think the guideline is. Don't be surprised when opposition comes because it's going to come. When we live differently, um, there's just we have a different value system. Therefore, there, it's going to be conflict. I don't know where I read this, but I thought it was good. Um, Christians live differently. We're not perfect, but we should be different. So, in our workplaces, you know, sometimes people have a, a misconception of what a Christian is or how a Christian should live. And as soon as you do something wrong, or if they perceive wrong, they're gonna point it out. Ooh, I thought you were Christian, and that's really not what Christianity is about. Um, but we should be different. Yeah, like it's funny when I'm at work, if someone like swears in front of me, like, oh, I'm sorry. If they remember that, you know, oh, you're a pastor. I shouldn't swear in front of you. And I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> you know, like that's you, people swearing isn't gonna, isn't doesn't bother me. And that's just how people talk in the workplace. And sometimes I'll I'll swip, slip up and swear. And then that, but that will really set people up. They can swear all day long, up and down. But if you swear, then, uh uh-oh, you know, you're a Christian. You shouldn't be swearing. And it's, you know, and, you know, not that we should swear, but, like, you know, the Bible never says, thou shall not swear. (laughs) But it does say that we should be living differently. Like, we should be thinking differently. And that's why we wouldn't swear, because we're thinking differently. Um, and so, when we live as Christians, we are going to live differently, and that is going to create opposition and what Paul is saying is don 't be surprised and so that 's what the guideline is here don 't be surprised when um, when things just are different it 's funny too uh, uh, there 's a story that I used at work or from from work um, so this girl um, how do I I'm trying to think how to tell the story anyways um, so I know these people and they go to a catholic church and um, their cousin or someone is going someone's going to be confirmed and they picked someone else to be their sponsor so in the catholic church when you when you are a teenager you're confirmed and you become a member of the church you need a sponsor and so this person picked a family member to be the sponsor but the priest was like no, that person, you guys are living together, um, you're not married, you're living together, you have children. He can't be a sponsor. He can't sponsor you to be a member of the Catholic Church. And the family got really mad that the priest wouldn't let the nephew pick the uncle. And they, didn't, and they don't see that how that's wrong. Because, and they think it's wrong that the priest won't let the family member do that. But the priest is like, you're not living as a Catholic. You shouldn't be the sponsor. And so my friend is telling me the story from the side of the family and like how dare the priest say that you know and I'm like oh no the priest is right (laughs) and because I live differently and I think differently and that and so when those things happen we shouldn't we we should just expect it we shouldn't be surprised so I wasn't surprised that my friend thought that because I know she they're not Christians and um but, but I wasn't going to be like, oh, yeah, you're right. You know, cause, and that would be the easy thing. Oh, yeah, how could they? And just not talk about it. You know, and said, no I, 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 um, no, I think the priest is right. <laughs> and, we did, and I knew that was going to cause opposition. But that's what happens. And this is what the guy, and this is what Paul is telling the Philippians. Expect opposition. Because when we live worthy of the gospel, opposition is going to happen. But it's a sign for us. Um, i like, where I thought there was a sign. <laughs> All right, let's see what happens. Living differently leads to opposition. Oppos- okay, opposition is a sign from God. And this sign is about our eternal destination. Because um, the, the bottom line is everyone... Um, oh, so Paul says, this is a sign of their destruction, but of your salvation, a sign which is from God. So when opposition comes... It is a sign of the destruction that is coming to the, to the person opposing you, but it's also a sign of your salvation. And this is talking about eternity. Everyone lives forever. It's just a question of where, heaven or hell. And like in our evangelism, a lot of times we you know, talk to people, do you want to go to heaven? Everyone wants to go to heaven. No one really thinks about going to hell or um, living forever. But the fact is, everyone is going to live forever. It's just where? Because every person... In every human being is more than just flesh. They, are, they have a soul. And the soul will never die. And the question is, where will the soul go? And so a lot of people don't think of that. They think, oh, I'm alive, and then I die, that's it. Especially, you know, evolution is very, feeds into that. And this is why evolution is a popular concept among non-Christian people because um, it just says that there is no soul, that you just live and you die. And the thing with that is, if you just live and die, then, then why do anything, right? Why be good? And that's something I bring up to my non-Christian friends. Because no one will say, oh, it's okay to steal. Or, it's okay to murder. Like, we all know those things are wrong. But one of the things that I say is, why live differently? If nothing matters, if there's no God, then why do I have to be good? Because everyone says, oh, you have to be good. Be a good worker. be this, But, but why? Well, the reason is because we do live forever. And if you can get them to think along those lines, um, that's a foothold to bring the gospel to them. Because we all live forever, it's just a question of where. And it's only two choices. (laughs) It's either in heaven with God or in hell without him. And it's all about your relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's what makes the difference. If you have Christ, you you go to heaven. If you don't have Christ, you don't. And it's that, it's that simple. Um, and so that's what Paul is talking about here. And so we can take um, comfort in, in this fact when opposition does come. Because that's the other thing too. Don't be surprised that opposition comes. But when it does, don't get scared. It's okay. You should expect it. And just remember, you're going to heaven. Um, and they're not. And that, that should cause us some, some thinking and some upset. But it can also bring us comfort, because we know our ultimate end is way better than theirs. And the psalmist even says that. One of the psalms says, uh, basically, this is the creamy paraphrase, but it says, hey, I looked around at all these people. They were doing well. They had everything really good. They had really nice lives, even though they were bad. And we do this really a lot in, our, in movies. Like, I love mafia movies, right? And then you leave, and you're like, oh, man, I wish I was in the mafia. You know, man, that guy has everything. You know, he can park wherever he wants. You know, he doesn't pay any taxes. You know, and so in the creamy paraphrase of the psalm would be, wow, look at that gangster. I wish I was a gangster. But and then the psalm says, but then I remembered their end. They're going to hell, and I'm not. <laughs> and that's really, when opposition comes, we, we, we take comfort in that. And when your opposition comes, you can think, oh, wow, you know, I am living worthy because if you weren't living worthy, there would be no opposition. Because if you're not living differently, they're not going to oppose you. So that's the sign. And Paul tells us it's a sign from God. Um, all right. So and in Philippi, they were facing opposition, which we'll see in a minute. And the third guideline is to suffer graciously. Now, no one wants to suffer. But what does it mean to suffer is, is a different question. Um, but not even Paul wanted to suffer Paul and Paul who's gone through everything again we look at Paul Paul is like the the model Christian but Paul wouldn't want to be considered a model Christian although he does say follow me but then he says follow me as I follow Christ and so Paul had it together but there were times where Paul wasn't happy about suffering Paul is never happy hey I got beaten today You know, um, they rejoiced because they were able to stand witness for Christ, but they didn't look for suffering. And in fact, in the book of Corinthians, three times Paul goes to God and says, take this thorn in my flesh away. And he just says, I want to get rid of this suffering. And three different times he asked God to take it. And God kept saying no. Um, And it's interesting. We don't know what the thorn in the flesh was for Paul, but there was something and it was suffering and he didn't want it. And that's what we need to, to take from that. But God says this. Um, God's answer uh, to suffering is, my grace is enough. And so Paul was just told to <coughs> that God's grace would get him through. And so when we suffer, we want to do so um, graciously. Suffering is an act of grace. And amazingly enough, it actually comes from God. In our text, Paul says, for it has been granted to you to not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for him. Okay, there's no comforting words in this passage. (laughs) I don't like this one either. But the word granted comes from, um, this word granted, it comes from the same word, the root of this word is the same word that we get the word grace from. It's charis. And so what we see in this verse, that suffering is an act of grace. God giving us suffering is an act of grace. Um, Tom Constable explains it this way. It says, all believers have received a gracious gift from God. It is the privilege of suffering for Jesus Christ. The Greek word, translated granted, comes from charis, meaning grace. Few Christians view suffering for their testimony as a blessing, but that is really what it is. Suffering is one of the tools God uses to mold his children into vessels that bring glory to his son. Now, suffering comes in many forms and in many ways. And we have to, like, sometimes, when we're going through something, we have to decide, well, am I suffering or am I just uncomfortable? (laughs) Am I just complaining? My son Joshua um, is really tall and whenever he has to ride in the back seat of a car, he's like, oh, i got to suffer. <laughs> and so he thinks sitting in the back seat of the car is suffering because he's uncomfortable. And so he, he, we ride around a lot, and he used to say this a lot, and he just, oh, I'm suffering, I'm suffering. And, and I tried to explain, like, that's not suffering, but I really just wasn't connecting. And then finally I realized, he's just uncomfortable. And so I had to say to him, okay, you're not suffering, you're just uncomfortable. And a lot of times in life, I think we do the same thing. We're uncomfortable in the situation that we're in. And we're like, oh, I'm suffering. Or like, oh, I'm uncomfortable at work. Oh, I'm being persecuted because my job is too hard. Well, no, you're just uncomfortable because you don't like what you're being asked to do. <laughs> and you have to do it. That's your job. You know, some people, like, complain about, the, about things they have to do at work. But, like, but that's your job. Like, you signed up for that when you took the job. Um, I work... I work as a nurse now. Usually in most companies, nurses on the weekends uh, do alternating shifts. So they alternate weekends. So one weekend you're on, one weekend you're off. And that's typical for nursing homes and, and um, in, the, in the industry. However, where I work, um, we do it differently. Um, you take one weekend shift, and that's your, your shift. So you either work a Friday night or you work a Saturday night. And when you get hired, you know what shift you're hired for. So I was hired to work Friday nights. And so Friday night is my my weekend night. And now I like that because I know every Friday night I'm going to work and every Saturday night I have off. I don't want to alternate. I don't want to, oh, am I working this Saturday? Oh, then I can't do that. I want to know exactly what my schedule is. And so I like that. And that's why one of the reasons that I took the job at the company that I'm in because I knew I'd have a steady schedule. Every, you know, so often we have uh, meetings, and at every meeting there's somebody who says, oh, I don't like working this. Or uh, another thing that my company does is they have 14-hour shifts on the weekends. So some people work uh, 9 a.m. to 11 o'clock at night. Now, I would not take that shift, but when you took the job, you knew that was the shift that you signed up for. And so now, you know, so that's the other thing people complain, oh, it's too long. Well, then why'd you take it? (laughs) Uh, But, you know, to complain about that, that's not suffering. Maybe it's uncomfortable, but you knew that going into it. And then I just want to stop complaining because I like my job. I like working Fridays and not Saturdays, and that's why I work here. But these aren't forms of suffering. It just might be uncomfortable. Um, Suffering is very different. Suffering, but it comes in many many types and sizes. Um, It's not one size fits all. (laughs) And we all do suffer to some degree. Now, Paul does say to the Philippians, since you are encountering the same conflict that you saw me face, and now here that I am facing. It's kind of weird out of context. But what we learn from this verse is that the Philippians that Paul is writing to, they're suffering in the same way that Paul was suffering. Because he says, you're suffering like you saw me face and now hear that I am facing. Now, we know from our background study that the conflict that Paul is facing as he writes this is imprisonment. Paul is writing from prison. Uh, We've talked about this several times. So we know that Paul is in prison in Rome as he's penning this letter. So when he says, the conflict that you hear that I am facing, he's talking about being in jail. So evidently, some of the Philippians were being put in jail because that's where Paul is and he's saying you're suffering the same conflict that I am and when he says the conflict that you saw me face that's about being in jail too and in Acts 16 records for us Paul's time in um, in Philippi and he was arrested and beaten when he was in Philippi I'm going to read you a little um excerpt here from this This is the Life Application Bible Commentary, and they just really summarize Paul's time in Philippi well, so I wanted to read it to you. It says, Paul certainly had a a memorial. Paul could remember his experience in Philippi because it was really exciting. (laughs) While he didn't face Judaizers, he did face opposition of another kind. Paul cast a demon out of a young slave girl who had been um, earning a great deal of money for her owners through fortune-telling. When the demon was released the girl's fortune-telling powers disappeared so the girl's owners were furious Paul and Silas were arrested stripped beaten flogged and thrown into pr- prison while they were put in an inner wh- where they were put into an inner cell with their feet fastened in stocks but Paul and Silas praised God and sang hymns in their prison cell suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken At once, all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. As a result, the jailer and his family believed, and Paul and Silas were released to continue their journey. Um, And so Paul was beaten and put in jail and then miraculously delivered. Now, that's suffering. (laughs) Being beaten and put in jail is suffering. And evidently, the Philippians are going through the same thing because he's saying, you are experiencing the same conflict that I am. But Paul faced it by singing hymns. And, being, and then when, and when the, he was miraculously released, they didn't run away. They actually stayed in jail. Um, and this is a perfect example of gracious suffering. Uh, and the amazing thing is, think of all the good that came from Paul's suffering. Uh, because of Paul's suffering in Philippi, thousands of people have been saved. Because of Paul's suffering, we have one of the clearest presentations of the gospel in the Bible. Acts Acts 16.31 is a direct result of Paul's suffering when he was in Philippi. And it's the clearest presentation of the gospel. Acts 16.31 says, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It, It doesn't get any clearer than that. And it's that easy. Believe and you will be saved. And that verse is the direct result of Paul's suffering in Philippi. So if Paul somehow could get out of suffering and didn't go to jail in philippi we wouldn't have that verse so god uses suffering for his glory and that's what we need to remember um we can accept paul is able to accept um suffering graciously because he knows god is using it and god is doing something for it but you know when that happened and when paul was locked up he wasn't like thinking in his mind hey my chains are going to be loosed, and then the, the jail is going to come in, and he's going to be so scared, and I'm, I'm going to say, believe in Jesus, and you'll be saved. You know, Paul isn't thinking that. He's just going through his life, oh, man, now I'm locked up again. <laughs> he said, but it's okay, because God's in control. And so we need to do the same thing. Um, in America, we don't experience that kind of suffering, at least not right now. <laughs> um, but it's okay. You know, it's okay that we don't suffer to that degree. And God doesn't want us to go seek it. The Bible never says, seek suffering. It just says, when you are suffering, do so graciously. Um, But I found this uh, um, uh, this is a way for us to apply it. One commentator um, says this. This is called When Life is Comfortable. Shoot. I'm going to read it from over here. It says, not every Christian suffers. Plenty of Christians prosper in business or career, enjoy excellent health care, and are not targets of political injustice. Many have heard about but do not personally experience hunger or oppression. Is something wrong? Paul never urges Christians to seek suffering as if, they were, as if there were virtue in pain. Neither should we forget those who suffer. If your cupboard is full, share your food. If you control the wheels of state power, work for justice and mercy. If you are wealthy, give generously to the poor. When life is comfortable, willingly take a share of someone else's pain, and so tell the world that the gospel is true. So it's okay that we're not suffering to the degree that, people, that we see people suffer. We're not being persecuted to the point of being arrested and being beaten. Um, and that's okay. We don't have to look for that. And it doesn't mean that we don't suffer in other ways, because we do have times of suffering. But in general, overall, American Christianity isn't suffering. But that doesn't mean we still can't suffer graciously. We can partake in someone else's suffering. And today, uh, Pat brought about Compassion International and and our sponsorship of children. You can sponsor a child, and when you do so, you're applying this verse, because you're participating in their suffering. Um, so the bottom line is, when experiencing suffering, do so with grace. And if you're not currently suffering, share in someone else's. Um, all right. Oh, so this is where the personal relationship with Christ comes in. Remember, I began saying, these are guidelines. So the guideline here is suffer graciously. But the personal relationship with Christ is going to guide you how to do that. Are you going to... Um, sponsor a child through compassion international some of you will do that some of you will will help the or that's helping the orphans but some of you will help the widows or work in a food shelter there are many different ways that you can do this and this is where the personal relationship of christ comes in he's going to let you know how he wants you to do that and how you do it is going to be different than how i do it and that's okay and so you do what god's called you to do and i'll do what god's called me to do and everything will be cool but the other thing is don't judge the person if they're not doing it the way that you do it. And that's the danger. And that we see that a lot um, in general. You know, sometimes when people don't do things the way that we do them, we think, oh, they're doing it wrong. Well, that's not true. The guideline is just suffer graciously or to share in someone's suffering. It's not the way that I say, it's the way that God says. And if God told us all to do the same thing, then not everything would get done. If God said, hey, support the orphans to every single person. But forget about the widows, then the widows aren't gonna be served. God wants us to do both. And that's why he, he tells different things to different people. And that's how these are guidelines and not rules and regulations. It's about so don't lose that personal relationship with Christ. So in closing. All right. So in closing, these guidelines in Christian living suggest what we should do, but it's God who will give us the specifics. So so live worthily by participating in the kingdom. Don't be surprised when opposition comes and share in someone's suffering. Uh, Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you initiated this relationship with us, that you loved us so much and wanted this relationship that you provided us the only way that we could have it, and that's through the death of your son. And I just thank you for that. I ask that we would all... Um, hear, you, hear your voice and that we would uh, join you in building your kingdom here in Warren, Rhode Island. Uh, amen.